Uh, my name is Brad Kendall. Like I said, we are going to do Q&A after the message. So if you have a question, please text a question to that number right there, or you can write a, uh, a question on the Ask Pastor Brad card, which is in your seat pocket in front of you. Uh, before we go any further, we're going to pray. And the way we're going to pray this morning is actually uh, the way we pray before we approach the biblical text on Wednesday nights in what we call Discovery Bible Experience. And so one of the things we try to teach in Discovery Bible Experience, Wednesday nights at 6.30, please join us. We'd love to have you join us there, is, is that it's important for us to ask God to enlighten our minds, to open our eyes, and, and help us see what He wants us to see. So I'm going to read that prayer. That'll be our prayer this morning as we head into the message. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your presence. We thank You for the truth, guidance, and power of Your Word. We ask you to speak to us, reveal more of yourself, and give us insight and understanding. Open our eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life through your word. You made us. You created us. Now give us the sense to follow your commands. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to get right to it. We've been in a series uh, all the way through March, and we're going to continue it on into the rest of the spring. We're calling it The Body. And each, re- each week, we've been looking at the, uh, the biblical foundation for why God gave us bodies. And uh, one of the things I've been trying to uh, demonstrate is if we don't know why God gave us bodies, then we don't really know what to do with our bodies. If you don't know why the purpose of a hammer, you don't really know how to use a hammer well. If you don't really know the the purpose of God's Word, you don't really know how to use God's Word well. Well, why did God give us these things we call bodies? And so let's do a quick review, just get us everyone on the same page. We will start here. We've talked about this, this specifically. You were made by love, you were made by God, to love God and to love others. The scriptures tell us that God is love. The scriptures tell us God created all things. Therefore, we are created by love. Your body, yourself, is created out of the very nature of God, and God is love. Secondly, you are made in God's image and likeness. Every person in this room Every person on this planet is made in God's image and likeness. Uh, Genesis 1, very specific. Our body selves were created by a very good God. We were created very good in His image, to reflect His image back into this world. Thirdly, your body, you are your body. Body, mind, and spirit, all of that is you. I bring this up because a lot of people, even Christians, divide up our beings in actually non-biblical ways. We are not souls stuffed into bodies. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. You are actually a unified being, body, mind, and spirit. All of that is you. You are not, not your body. God's redemption of you is actually all of you, and that includes your body. Fourthly, your body is a gift designed to give and receive love. 
You were made as a gift. The very fact that you exist is a gift from God. The very fact that your neighbor exists is a gift from God. You are a gift designed to be a giver. Your body is intimately designed to actually give to others, to give, give love and to receive love. So you're a giver, and the person, your neighbor, your beloved, whoever that is, is someone designed to give and receive love. Today, what I want to do is I want to focus on this main idea, what you do with your body matters. And while that might not be rocket science, and you're like, okay, Pastor Brad, tell us something new, please, I want to look at Genesis 3 and see how our body, what we do with our body, actually has cosmic ramifications. So if you would, grab a Bible or turn on your Bible, and we're going to go to Genesis 3. We're going to read all of it. It's a fascinating narrative, and you probably haven't read it lately. Maybe you have. If you have, that's great. Uh, And I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read this. I'm going to read it. I ask you to follow along. Remember, this is a narrative, okay? So you're like, Pastor, tell us a story. Well, here's a story. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until, the, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve 
because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. It's a long text. Um, I would hope that you would keep your Bibles open and follow along with me. Uh, I would also hope that you would grab your worship notes and follow along with me because they will help us all track together because I, if you're anything like me, as you sit here listening to some guy talk to you for a while or some woman talk to you for a while, your brain eventually moves toward lunch. All right, so if you want to help your brain not move toward lunch, it'd be helpful if you'd actually follow along with me in your worship folder. All right, so uh, let's, what do we see here? Well, first of all, <clears throat> Genesis is interesting. It's a spiritual text, isn't it? The Bible is a spiritual book. But this is a very physical story, isn't it? It's not just about spiritual concepts. No, this is a very physical story. We ended Genesis 2 with a very physical picture, very good picture, we would say. Adam and his, and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's a very uh, physical description right there. The picture here is of the man and the woman and God and in the garden, all living together in harmony. Okay? Um, now, there's a word I want to teach you. Maybe you know it very well. It's the word shalom. What we have here in Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is typically translated as peace in the Bible for our English eyes and ears. But the concept of shalom is really illustrated very well in this picture. God, the man, the woman, all creation living in harmony. And here's something worth the price of admission. I'd like to give you, demonstrate for you a way to illustrate shalom in Genesis 1 and 2 to your kids, to yourself, to anyone. Just a good way to remember this. Our Catholic brothers and sisters have a wonderful practice, I think, and they cross themselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's actually a wonderful physical uh, expression uh, to, to participate in. Shalom is a right relationship with God, self, others, and all creation. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have communion with God, self, others, and all creation. And what we have in Genesis 3 now, as this narrative continues, is we have a breaking of shalom. We have a cosmic thing that happens, and it's not just sin is a little deal because our bodies do things that matter. When our bodies do things outside of the will of God, when our body selves do things contradictory to the will of God, it actually changes all of living. Let's unpack this. Look at, uh, we'll start with this. Number one, sin breaks our relationship with God. So sin is anything, actually, if you would, um, can you go back a slide? There we are. I didn't, I didn't note this, I wanted to. Sin is the culpable breaking of shalom. 
Okay, so when we're talking about sin throughout this message, what we're talking about is our participation in the breaking of right relationship with God, self, others, and all creation, okay? So, again, back to one. Sin breaks our relationship with God. If you take a look at the text, verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, first of all, I want you to note this. This text, this picture of God walking in the garden, that's very physical, isn't it? We don't have a picture here in Genesis 3 of God floating in the garden. We don't have God on some distant cloud looking over the garden. No, we have God's presence physically with the man and the woman in creation. And the implication, I think, is that the man and the woman have walked with God. They were walking with God physically, and there was no need to hide at this point. Why? Well, last week we talked about this idea that love gives without hiding. So if I love another, I give to them, and I do so in a way that I don't need to hide. If I have pure motives in my giving, I don't need to hide anything. If I want to manipulate you, I need to hide that in the giving. If I want to do something mean to you, I need to hide that in the giving. But if my love is pure and honest and true, then there is no reason to hide in my giving of myself to you. Before their sin, God gave of himself to Adam and Eve, and they gave of themselves to each other and God. But in their sin, suddenly instead of giving, there's taking. God said, don't take from this particular tree, and they took anyway. If love gives without hiding, sin actually takes and requires some hiding. I can't give in transparency to you if I took something from you you said not to take. And, of course, we're hiders too, aren't we? We know what it is to hide. I mean, think for a second. Let's say Jesus called you up today and said, hey, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. What's the first thing you're going to do? Honey, let's clean the house. (laughs) Right? And and, and in the cleaning, you you might say, you know what, let's put that in the the closet. Let's put that one under the bed. And you might, you know, just in case, what what if he wants to uh, uh, go on Google? We might want to clean out our browser. uh, And we might want to go on TV and clean out, you know, our history of everything we've been watching. What we do in the presence of the pure love of God is we hide. We're experts at hiding. We know that. We all do it. This, of course, begs the question, what are you hiding? Is there anything you're hiding? Is there spending you're hiding from your family? Is there internet activity you're hiding? Is there a relationship that you're hiding? All the stuff we want to hide. Isn't it interesting? It's all decisions we're making with our bodies, with ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I've discovered there's actually no freedom in hiding. None. Hiding's actually a prison. But there's great freedom in transparency. 
There's great freedom when you can say, "Hun, look at the bank account. I have nothing to hide. Hun, look at my, my internet browsing. I have nothing to hide. Look at what I've been watching on TV. I have nothing to hide. You know, I have on my phone, uh, Jill and I have this thing where um, she can go on her phone and figure out where I am. I'm perfectly okay with that. I have nothing to hide. There's great freedom in that. But when you have something to hide, immediately you're chaining yourself to something. So what are you hiding? There's great freedom in, a, in AA or NA when an alcoholic says something honest. I'm an alcoholic. I admit it. The reason they do that is because there's freedom in being honest. There's freedom in transparency. But of course, in Genesis 3, there's the hiding. And what's the consequence of the hiding? Well, there's not going to be any more walks in the garden. God made this creation so we could be with him together, giving and receiving divine love. But now, because of sin, we hide from God. That intimacy with God is broken. Secondly, sin breaks our relationship with ourselves. Yeah, when I sin, it, just, it doesn't just hurt something out here. When I sin, that breaks something in me. Genesis 2 gives us naked and unashamed. Genesis 3 introduces shame. And shame in itself is what? Well, it's, first of all, very personal Verses 6 and 7, the man and the woman, they each take the fruit, and then it says, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, what's the difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? It's not that suddenly in Genesis 3, nudity is wrong. (laughs) That's not what's going on here, actually. It's because of their shame, because of their behavior, they realize, huh, I have a problem. I need to cover up. And isn't that what happens? You know, this is is the headline we read uh, or we see on CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch. If someone, some organization, some business, some politician, if they're doing something wrong, immediately there's a cover-up. (laughs) right? Watergate, cover-up. It's all a cover-up. That's what we're afraid of. I've done something wrong. They've done something wrong, so we have to cover up. Now, shame specifically is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And this is the fundamental identity crisis we have when we participate in the culpable breaking of shalom, when we sin. We are created as image bearers, lovers, designed uh, as gifts to be givers, no reason to hide, nothing to cover up, but in our sin, that, that harmony, that shalom with ourselves is suddenly broken, and I can't be transparent anymore. I was designed for good, but now part of me needs to be covered up. Hmm. And we become divided selves. Before Genesis 3, we could say, the man could say, the woman could say, I am an image bearer of God. I am made for good. Once Genesis 3 comes in, and that sin, and they participate in the culpable breaking of shalom, it's not just I am good, it's I am ashamed. My identity changes. I am a giver. 
I've become a taker. And so identity kind of cracks. It breaks down. I say in, in, in here quite a, a bit, when you know who you are, you know what to do. What sin does is it messes with your identity. It cracks you all up. So you forget what God created you to be. So sin, it breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with ourselves. It also, three, breaks our relationship with each other. Where before Adam and Eve were complementary image bearers of God, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, now they're starring in a game show. It's called the blame game. (laughs) It's her fault, the woman you gave me. No, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. (laughs) And and we all find ourselves in this part of the story, don't we? Uh, This is called scapegoating. I need to find someone to blame. Someone has to be at fault, and it's clearly not me. i got to blame someone. Whose fault is it? Well, it's the brown people. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not the brown people. It's the black people. No, no, no. It's the white people. Ah, oh, no, no, no. It's the poor people. No, it's the rich people. No, it's the Democrats. No, it's the Republicans. No, you know the problem? It's the church. It's organized religion. No, 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 no. I think it's the terrorists. No, 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 no. It's the schools. On and on and on we blame. Wouldn't you love to go to a protest march somewhere and, and everyone's holding a sign that says, It's my fault, my bad, I'm sorry. (laughs) Wouldn't you just love that? Because what is it? We want to go out together and we want to be able to point the finger at some sort of goat we can kill. War, bloodshed, hatred, every fight on every street and every playground all stems from blame. It's not my fault, it's your fault. But if we go to the text, there's actually even a more fundamental problem going on here. Before Genesis 3, we talked about this, the man and the woman, Azer Konegdo. The idea is this, this Hebrew idea of uh, both created in, in the image of God, both standing on level ground, complementary images of each other. But because of their sin, look at verse 16. You'll see it on the screen as well. God says to the the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, people often say the Bible is sexist and so forth, plays all these power games. No, the Bible is very honest. In the beginning, man and woman both created in the image of God image of God, complementary image bearers, but after sin, suddenly that level ground gets out of balance. And suddenly, there's a power struggle going on. And there is breakdown because of shalom, the breaking of shalom, there's breakdown in the relationship with each other. That's part of the curse. That was never God's original intent. Before their sin, Adam and Eve were equal. Now, because of their sin, that harmony, that balance is out of whack. It's destroyed. And the blame game is always going to be a power play, isn't it? It's our culpable breaking of shalom, and it breaks our relationships. God, self, others, it gets cracked. And then lastly... Sin breaks our relationship with creation. I think it's fascinating 
all these arguments we have in our country about climate change, it doesn't really matter to me, just hear me. The bottom line is this, gang, whether the, the earth is warming or not, the bottom line is God has charged no other creature on the face of the planet with stewarding this creation. It's no one else's job but ours. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. It doesn't matter whether the, the earth is warming or not. It's our job to steward the garden. We are God's gardeners, ladies and gentlemen. But of course, sin eats away at that too. By Genesis 3, shalom with creation is out of whack. It's out of harmony. God says to Adam in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And if you know Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you see this is such a different picture. Genesis 1 ends with God promising every green plant, every fruit-bearing tree for food for the couple. But now because of their sin, through painful toil... Through thorns and thistles, they will encounter the land. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, in one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, Romans 8 talks about how because of our sin, this creation is in, quote, bondage to decay. It's not the dog's fault. It's not the cat's fault. It's not the whale's fault. It's not the bird's fault. It's our fault. It's our sin that has put this creation in bondage to decay. What we do with our bodies matters. It matters to God. It matters to us. It matters to each other and all creation. And you would think, boy, Pastor Brad, you're just a downer this morning. <laughs> Genesis 3, it's just all bad news. But because God is good and God loves all that he has made, we see a sliver of hope. Verse 15, you'll see it on the screen. In God's curse against the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You think, that's odd. What in the world's going on there? Well, if we travel through the scriptures, one of the things we see is that over and over again, offspring are listed as the sons of dot, 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 dot. There's only one person who's really the offspring of only a woman. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the child born within her will be the one who fights back and destroys the enemy. This is Jesus. Jesus heals the brokenness from our culpable breaking of shalom. And if you go through the scriptures, who is Jesus? Well, let's see. He is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. What is, what's that word peace in the Hebrew? Ah, Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. Jesus is the prince of shalom. He is the one who will destroy the works of the devil. He will crush his head. Look at this. 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the devil's work. 
We say, the reason Jesus came was so we could be forgiven of our sins. Absolutely. But don't forget, for our sins to be forgiven, for God to bring restoration to the creation, Jesus had to do battle with the enemy. The primary purpose of Jesus' coming was his victory over the enemy. What's more, the Bible speaks of Jesus, catch this, as a second Adam, the second Adam of God's new creation. I love that. Now, I'm just going to be able to show you one verse on this, but there's more theology that goes with this, and it's very exciting. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, for as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The implication throughout the scriptures is that Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation, and we are part of that new creation. And so it is through Jesus we return to harmony, to shalom, to that fellowship that God originally intended for everyone. Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What God imposed upon uh, the first couple in Genesis 3 has been healed in, Genesis, in, uh, in uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. You know what that means? That means, actually, that there is no need to hide anymore. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. There's no need to hide anymore when God comes walking into your life. You don't need to hide. There's no need to blame anymore, actually. And yes, you're a sinner, but so is everyone else. And Jesus has died for you and everyone else so that that distance, so that that brokenness can be restored with God, self, others, and all creation. So, let me just review a little bit because we're almost done. <clears throat> what we do with our bodies matters. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have invited us into the communion of the Godhead so that we would live in right relationship and harmony with God, self, others, and all creation. Sin breaks that, but Jesus comes and takes all that sin upon himself and invites restoration to all who will trust and believe. My question is this, is there one thing from today's message that spoke to you? I'm going to do something a little different here, and I, I kind of like it. <laughs> At Discovery Bible Experience on Wednesday nights, we go through a biblical text, and then we ask, what's one thing that really struck you? We've talked about a lot of stuff today. So here's my question. What is one thing that God's kind of shining a light on for you from this morning's message? And in light of that, what is God inviting you to do, change, or pray about? In your message notes, there's some, a, a space to write. And, and I'm going to challenge you as, as we do Q&A and as we talk right now, what is that one thing that really struck you? And is, it, is there any invitation from God for you to respond to this in some way? Maybe the invitation for you today simply to say, you know what, uh, I need to be transparent. I am uh, someone who 
is part of the problem. <laughs> I, I am part of the culpable breaking of shalom. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And if you've never said that in your life before, after Q&A, I'd love to give you an opportunity to put your faith in the one who heals the brokenness. All right, let's bring, uh, I'm going to bring Shar up. We're going to do Q&A. I invite you to write a question down, to send me a question, and I'll grab one of these. If you're new to Faith Covenant, we do Q&A quite a bit here. And I always reserve the right to be wrong. Let's... Can you start with that one? Is it fair to say that no one really knows what will happen in the end, only what we believe will happen? Only what we believe will happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, thank you, Van. Yeah, if you have a question, um, you can hold it up, and one of the ushers will get it, or you can just walk up and hand it to me. (laughs) Thanks, Van. Um, Is it fair? Well, so let's let's unpack that just a little bit. Um, Let's start with this. In Christianity, we are a people born out of a particular thing, a particular narrative, and that is the Bible, okay? So if the Bible is true, and in Christianity we believe it is true, so if the Bible is true, then it, it's not, the, the ending doesn't come according to what we believe. The ending comes, or what happens in the end, is according to what God intends to happen, okay? And so... Uh, that wouldn't be the, we would say in Christianity, no, it's, it's not that we don't know what's coming. And the, the scriptures are pretty clear. We know that in the end, there is all kinds of things that happen according to God's word. There is a, uh, a coming together, there's Jesus' return, there's a coming together of heaven and earth, there is a, um, a etern- an eternal life that is physical, that we get to be with God forever. So that is if, if the Bible is true, then that's true. Um, I, I want to challenge maybe this idea that um, what happens in the end will just happen according to what we believe. Um, I don't know that that's actually true in most of anything. Um, I might believe 2 plus 2 equals 5, but that doesn't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. I might believe I can jump off a cliff and I won't die, but that doesn't make you know, that belief true. My, my faith in my ability to fly does not make my ability to fly a reality. And so the, the idea that we, um, what's going to happen is going to be dependent upon just whatever I believe, I, I don't think we've, we find that actually true in much of anything. So, yeah. How about another one? All right. Um, there are two that are similar. Um, one says, did God create humanity knowing that we would sin? Um, if yes, why give us the command to not eat the fruit? Is God really all-knowing? And then why did God allow the forbidden tree in the garden to begin with? Okay. Um, I'm going to hand this to you. Okay. You read that. I, um, I combined a couple of them. Basically, if he knew it was going to happen, why did he do it that way? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a great question. I've asked that question myself. Um, I think, yes, God knew we would sin. Um, think about it this way. Um, if, if you're a parent or you intend one day to be a parent, uh, you, you move into parenthood with the knowledge 
the potential that my child might be hard to live with is there. <laughs> uh, the potential that my child might reject me is there. But you still make love to someone, and out of that loving is born a creation, and your, and your hope is that they will love you. And you. But yet you've known all along they might reject you. Um, and so I would say, yes, God knew. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the, the, it depends on how, what, what you're going to do with Genesis. And, and the, so there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, all of creation is, is uh, given to the man and the woman. You, you have everything. You, you're stewarding everything. It's all, just this one thing, okay? And whether that is literal tree of knowledge of good and evil with actual fruit coming from it, or whether that is figurative, uh, and, and this d- doesn't really matter in this case, actually, because the issue is um, the potential to reject God is illustrated in the presence of that physical thing which gives them the opportunity to accept God's will or reject God's will. I think that's why that's in the story, um, and so I'll leave that there. All right, here's another one. In the modern world, we reject the idea of collective guilt. Sin is the ultimate form of collective guilt. How can we Christians explain sin in a way that makes sense to non-believers? Yeah, that's a great, um, a great question. Um, what do you think, Char? <laughs> well, I think individual versus collective. Collective is kind of the things that we end up believing as a group or that become normal to us mm-hmm. as a group, like white privilege um, mm-hmm. that we are blind to. And, but it's there. It's a collective thing, but we're blind to it, and it's just kind of part of mm-hmm. something we don't even realize because we're in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I don't, when, when talking with uh, someone who's not a believer, I think it's, it's when we say believer, who's not a Christian, who's someone who doesn't, you know, who's not, uh, doesn't believe Jesus is who Jesus said he was and doesn't believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, etc. When we're talking to someone like that, the, uh, it's okay to say, um, well, this is, this is the way we believe. So our, 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 story, the Bible, um, gives us this context. We would say, and I, w- I would use even the, the crossing yourself as maybe an illustration. Um, we are designed to be um, in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's our text. That's what it says, okay? Um, and in that communion, we have right relationship with God, self, others, and all creation. And sin we would say, is anything that breaks those relationships. I, I think that's, that's an okay thing to say. Um, I think a lot of people can, can say, okay, I, I don't believe your deal, but I can, I can maybe see why you would say that. Um, the, if you want to be even more simple, you say, well, in Christianity we would say, God's law says love God and love others, and anything that gets in the way of that is sin. <laughs> that's even probably more simple, Okay. I think another way to build common ground between a believer and a non-believer is we can all agree that there are things that are just not right to do. Yeah, excellent. I don't think anybody yeah. would say it's okay to walk down the street and shoot somebody. Right. I, I just think there are common things that like that that 
We all would agree. Yeah, yeah. Very true. Sometimes people will say, um, well, we're, you know, my, my friend the atheist would say, well, we're just um, animals trying to survive. And so if, if someone's threatening the herd, it's okay to uh, destroy them. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing to say. Well, that's an interesting uh, concept. Where'd you get that idea? Tell me about where, where you got your ideas about what is right and what is wrong. I want, I want to learn from your perspective. I can tell you our perspective, and you know, let's, let's grow closer to each other by sharing each other's uh, belief systems. Thank you, Char. I would like to close.